Dirty moderates, we all have wondered, how the hell did the Republican Party go nuts? What happened? Where did it come from? How did what was seemingly a conservative center-right party that used to believe in the rule of law, the FBI, anti-communism, and a whole and limited government uh, become a um, a complete nuthouse. And our guest today has written probably, I think, the most important uh, book on this from the inside and from the outside, actually. Tina Wen is joining me. If you haven't heard about this book, well, you've been living under a rock. It's called The MAGA Diaries. My Surreal Adventures Inside the Right Wing and How I Got Out. Uh, Tina, uh, welcome to Dirty Moderate. Thank you so much for having me. I am, uh, that, that was really such good praise of the book. That's um, very kind of you to say. Well, I really loved it. And, and folks, this is amazing. And I love in your acknowledgments, you said, what right do you have in your 30s for writing a memoir? Well, it's a must read memoir because it ties into your book and how early um, would be adherents of the conservative movement join, right? How they how they're part of a machine and it can start very young and it can start, uh, you know, for all sorts of different reasons. But before we go into that, because your book talks about it. You're Boston-born, daughter of Vietnamese immigrants. And so let's, let's before we get into that, because we have a lot to talk about, let's go to the beginning and tell us a little bit about where it all started and who you are, even, even before you were, long before you were a Politico and you were doing 1776 in the fifth grade, as in the musical. Oh, man. All right. Uh, all right. Very condensed version of my entire super secret backstory. Okay. My parents were Vietnamese refugees, super brilliant people, but probably didn't have a lot of the social tact and skills to navigate the upper echelons of American society, uh, especially the types that you can only enter by getting into certain prep schools. Uh, they came from a really Asian mindset of like, okay, you went to this elite school. That's so important and very hard and very high society. All you have to do is get good grades and then you're set for life. That is not how it works in America. And that certainly <laughs> is not how it works when you go to school with Kennedys. So I lived this weird balance between like, wanting to succeed, but also just not knowing how, because my parents couldn't model that for me. Um, I yeah. actually, one of the pivotal moments of my life was when my father, who did for a while teach at Harvard, yeah. he didn't understand how the tenure system worked. So he's like, okay, I'm teaching at Harvard. Oh no, I can't be at Harvard anymore. And they're like, well, the thing is you didn't do all the political things inside the ac like academia that you were supposed to do. He goes into working at Children's Hospital Oh, oh, wait. Oh, my God. I'm really smart at computers, but I'm not going to be able to match all of these other powerful people because I'm not rich. Uh, and then he's like, how do people get rich quick? Man, what is this interesting business scheme that looks like a pyramid? So that's how. And at a certain point when you are hanging out with Kennedy's and your and the Kennedy family starts getting pitches from your dad to. I don't know, join a multi-level marketing scheme. Uh, that's when people start looking askance at you. And I mean, like a pyramid scheme. Oh, you wrote about that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, it was this thing where. Hey, Kennedy family, you want to invest in Amway? Is that kind of thing? Was it sort of? Yeah. It's yeah. like, hey, there's like, look at these <laughs> cleaning products and beauty products that are based on tea tree oil. Uh, what you do, what you do. And like, 
get this. You buy a whole bunch of it and then you get a whole bunch of your friends to buy them and then their friends buy them. And it's just right. like this pyramid. And look, one day you can own a Lexus and right. they're putting in their fancy multimillion dollar houses going, oh, oh, that's very kind of that. And I thank you for thinking of me. And then all of a sudden I just don't get invited to people's houses anymore. Well, um, I mean, let me ask you, let me ask you this. Cause I think it, 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 you know, you talk about it a little bit in the book, but still, you know, don't you think though, that again, a lot of that is the outgrowth of the immigrant experience of wanting you to have a better life, obviously, than they had this sort of commitment to, and again, maybe to a fault, you know, the kind of upward mobility and American dream mythos, which, which, you know, fueled not only their ambitions, but their hope for you. I oh, mean, isn't that, yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't want to go on the record bashing my parents. Like this was not, <laughs> right. this was not a world they understood um, right. in Vietnam and in a lot of Asian countries, upward mobility is pass this exam, get into this school, get this job, you're set for life. Um, in America, the hustle culture and the social dynamics that come with the destruction of a set hierarchy means that the rules are a little bit different and the fast talking and the resource and holding resources is just something that never really translated over to my parents. I, I think they also were really big nerds too. So they were obsessed with academia and getting good grades and putting me on a career track to succeed. And even if I had the right grades at some place like Milton, I would be competing against other people with great grades who also happened to, I don't know, have a world famous cellist right there, Harvard recommendation <laughs> lever. I, that was a there was legitimate rumor, which I think is actually somewhat true, that one of my classmates had Yo Yo Ma write his. Sorry. That's okay. Uh, yeah, I think someone – there was a rumor going around school that uh, classmate yeah. had Yo-Yo Ma write his <laughs> Harvard recommendation letter, which is a bit of a um, grip that I could not ever, like, pull off. And meanwhile, my mother's like, hey, let's go to this Harvard networking event. Oh, look, there's the president of Harvard. You should go up to him and ask to get into Harvard. That's how it works. <laughs> it reminds me, just a side story, a good friend of mine went to a, a very affluent – not that she was affluent, but super affluent connected summer sleepaway camp. And, you know, she was like hanging out in the, the main area and, and there was a kid there wearing a sleepless in Seattle t-shirt. So she says, wow, I love, um, I love this, uh, this shirt. I love that movie. And, and he goes, oh, my mom wrote it. It was like Nora Ephron's son. And he was like, she was like, oh my God, I don't know if I'm in the right place. You know, it's made me think of like, that was the world that, that you're sort of describing. Um, but what I, what I think is most fascinating is from where you are now to go back and look at what you've written in the book and where you, you know, where you started because you're national correspondent for Puck. You had worked at Politico, Vanity Fair. So you ended up in the non-conservative media world. Um, and I... But your memoir, which is very important for people to know, and I call it your memoir because it is, mm. is pre-MAGA. It's pre-Trump for the most part. I mean, you end up having this insight into it, but you're talking about really getting into this world like 2008, 2009. Um, 
I want to read this from your book because I think it's very uh, instructive. If I can, um, I'll give everyone I'll, I'll give everyone else a pass on not knowing about the sheer scale of the right inside American civic life. Because when I was a young conservative activist, I didn't know what they were trying to do either. Between 2008 and 2012, from college until my early 20s, I was simply a politics nerd with an unnerving obsession with the U.S. Constitution and American history who dated an odd but highly ambitious conservative boy in high school and followed him to Claremont McKenna College, a renowned college with a notoriously conservative government department and a deep affiliation with a right-wing think tank whose scholars and papers formed the backbone of the Trump doctrine. Okay, so... Is that how it really started? I mean, you went – tell everybody how you got to Claremont McKenna. I mean, what what road took you there? It's a very prestigious liberal arts school, by the way, mm -hmm. despite its you know right-wing Xanadu cred. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> these days, I have to be pretty clear, it doesn't have that credibility. It doesn't have that um, – it doesn't have that uh, reputation. I think it's drifted a little bit more centrist over time. Right. But when the school was founded, it absolutely was linked to the growth of the conservative movement. Uh, you know, the type that Buck William F. Buckley and Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan ended up building over time. Right. Uh, but what I when I got to when I um looked at Claremont McKenna, it was because my uh, high school boyfriend, uh, his name was Chuck Johnson, was applying to colleges. He wanted to get into Harvard because who doesn't? Uh, he did not get into Harvard. And the alternative that he had for himself was this place called Claremont McKenna. And we were looking at the admissions. Uh, we were looking at the board. The, we were looking at the website and yeah. the website was talking about, oh, here are our government professors, here are the research institutes we have on campus, it's good for the resume, and one of them is literally the Salvatore Center for the Study of Individual Freedom in the Modern World. And I was at the time and continue to be a massive geek about the founding fathers. Um, I loved the idea that they were trying to put together a government that somehow took all of the flaws and self-interest of human nature and tried to counterbalance that with these inherent human rights that they believed that every person should have, depending on what you believe every person was, depending on the founding father, with a caveat. Um, but the fact that they were all able to come together and be like, all right, let's just like make this government that somehow balances all of these things out. And I know that you don't agree that slavery is, a, and I know that like you want slavery and I know that you don't want slavery and I know that you would like some more power and you would like that person to have some less power. So here we go. Here's a government. Let's see if this works. And up till that point, um, I viewed government as, a lumbering kind of clunky machine, but somehow everything seemed to work. Uh, this was up through 2010. So uh, okay. that would explain my naivete and wide-eyed nature and view of it. But that was where I was at that point in my life. So having an opportunity to study that and make it my career possibly was 
was just an incredible idea. And uh, they threw a giant financial aid package at me and no one knew it then, but the fact that it did not come packaged with student loans absolutely saved my ass. Right, 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 right. Um, you know, the one of the things I also think is interesting about the book, and again, you know, your ambition is to be in journalism, which you absolutely are, and and then your ability to look back and write about this. You really were, I guess, free, and correct me if I'm wrong, free market leaning, sort of like I am. You had libertarian tendencies. I wouldn't say you were a true believer. I mean, you were kind of already not fully committed. So you were able to sort of from with a kind of gimlet detached eye, step back and see where this was going, you know, only to learn where it went once you were already out of it and writing for Vanity Fair. You know, mm -hmm. when Trump world came along, it was like, wow, you have to cover this. Cause by 2015, when he came down the escalator, you were, you know, out of that world for the most part, were you not? Literally, the day that he announced he was running for president was my second day at Vanity Fair. Right. Like, I am not kidding. Day right. one, I get my badge. I enter this beautiful office. It's full of fresh cut flowers and, and like gorgeous people swanning around in $2,000 jackets. Right. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is it. I've hit the big time. This is Vanity Freaking Fair. It's going to be Devil Wears Prada from here on out. I'm going to, like, <laughs> nothing, all of that thing, all the stuff I went through in college and after college, like, we're going to pretend that never happened. I am just going to be a fancy New York Magazine writer, and I'm never going to have to deal with right-wing bullshit ever again. <laughs> right. I mean, it's interesting, but, you know, the other thing that you write about, which I think is so... Um, and before we get into Tucker Carlson, I, I, the thing that you write about, which is so true that I think, you know, I was raised a Democrat, um, not a particularly left-wing Democrat, but I was, I've, you know, spent the majority of my life wondering how the Democrats were so bad at politics, you know, and remain pretty bad at politics, even though they've been winning and they've been lucky because they've been running against MAGA, you know, they've been running against a manifestly unfit con man. You know, mm -hmm. who can't, who is undisciplined and can't get his act together. You know, an aging Joe Biden, I think, would face serious hurdles if Chris Christie or Nikki Haley were actually the nominee. I think it'd be a very different electoral map. All of this is to say it was interesting what you say about why you cover the far right instead of the far left. And I want to read that because amen to this. And people who, who are listening need to know this. You write, and this is in the intro and in the prelude. Whenever someone asks me why I cover the far right instead of the far left, particularly my conservative sources, irked that a mainstream reporter is chasing after them, I have two answers. First of all, the left is incompetent. <laughs> I told a source once who'd asked me that question as we tore through slices of Sicilian-style pizza. They have no idea what they're doing, but they just want to get there immediately. It's like the left has an airplane. They want to get from point A to point B, but there's a mountain in the way. One would think you'd fly around the mountain or take a longer route. Might take some time and burn fuel, but you'll get there safely. But the far left, nope. They're like the shortest way from here to point B is a straight line, and no one can tell us. No one can tell us otherwise. And then, boom, the source delicately mopped a tomato sauce drop that had splashed onto his plate. But let me give it, but let me continue. But the second answer is that sometimes I don't think the left or even people who consider themselves centrist, center right, or even a regular card carrying Republican who's wondering why everyone went batshit over the past five years understands even now the scalar geography of the mountain that's in their way. 
Very important here, Tina. I love this. I'd even go so far as to mix metaphors and say it's a mountain that's also a perfectly calibrated Rube Goldberg machine. A bit too elaborately constructed with hundreds, if not thousands, of different pieces that need to be placed just so in order to achieve a specific outcome. This is key. It was constructed over decades, placed in the right places at the right times with the proper connections, proper protection, excuse me, from being set off too early. But when it was ready at the right moment, it would begin cascading under everyone's noses into a political avalanche. You, for people, so I've been studying, you know, political and po politics movements for like, since I'm like 14, since I'm a political young geek. And you think about Richard Vigari and the, and the direct male organizations of Paul Weyrich in the seventies, that what led to Phyllis Schlafly that led to the sort of ascendancy of Reagan and the new conservative movement. And you see just the way that over time becomes not just a, an, an industry, it's an industrial complex. And, and you got to see that firsthand. Talk about that. Talk about the way the right really builds, strategizes, the left is a mess, emotes, whines, mm -hmm. you know. And the right, no, the right is winning elections while the left is worried about the wrong idea, the wrong um, virtues, virtue signals, I would say. Mm. I mean, I think that would be a really, like, oversimplified way to say, to talk about the shortcomings of the left. Uh I think the best way to describe it, and I did spend about a year trying to cover the left the same way as I covered the right, only to discover, like, I just couldn't. Like, structurally, right. the progressive movement wants the future to arrive as quickly as possible and yeah. does not have a sense of how to convince more people to join that mission. Uh, in fact, I think they I would go so far to say is that, like, if you are hesitant towards their mission, they get mad at you. Right. Uh, right. And also the thing with having a vision for the future is that there will be so many people at once who are having different visions of what that end future should look like. And if you disagree with each other, it gets pretty offensive. And I, I think I would point to what's happening among the Democrat staffers right now in Congress and in the White House where they're like, oh, my God, the older people in this party are going in a direction that I don't like. What I'm going to do is I'm going to sign all these letters saying I disagree with my bosses and I may not put my name on it. I might put my name on it, but I'm going to publicly let everyone know that I, as a young progressive, do not agree with my bosses. And like that would never happen in a conservative no. administration or conservative presidency. Like no. you do not undermine the people you work for. That is a strong rule. And right. I think that's a rule that would exist in literally any other environment except the left. Well, uh, not, I mean, not just, polit not just politically, but like in an office, if yes. you're like working for a celebrity, anything like that, like, right on message. Well, it's the old thing that, that, you know, it seems to be, maybe it's changing because they're doubling down on Joe Biden, but you know, the Republicans, uh, Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. You know, and that's the way it goes. You know, you don't get to you, whoever the, the, the stalwart is or the standard bearer, you get behind it, right. you know, and, and uh, yeah. And um, ultimately, uh, I will give the progressives this. It is much harder to sell people on a vision for the future than it is to be like, we don't want change, which is the entire uh, origin story of the conservative movement to begin with. Like, if you go back to say 1959 1960 
the there's an element within the Republican Party, which is already like kind of right wing, but not really. That is like, oh, no, look what's happening in all of these communist countries where these people like like Stalin, Lenin, what's happening in China, what's happening in these smaller governments. They wanted societal change so quickly that they overthrew the government and then slid into destruction and tyranny. Uh, And that's sort of a impulse that goes back to the uh, Edmund to Edmund Burke, who was a uh, Irish British philosopher in the 1780s, who was like, "Oh my God, look what's happening in France! They wanted to um, spread the ideas of liberty, equality, brotherhood." Uh, but now they're chopping off the heads of all these aristocrats. This is insane. We don't like, ultimately the heart of conservatism is it's cool that you want a bright future with, to protect these certain set of rights. But if you move too quickly and abolish the structures that hold society together, you're going to end up like the French. Uh, we'd rather have, we would rather have the aristocracy in place, even though it's a backward ass institution, then go forward into the future because then, then go forward into the future as quickly as you want to. Um, and that's the really core difference between conservatives and progressives. Right. I mean, I, I would say as somebody who, who's a real mutt, a real hybrid in politics, hence dirty moderate, I would say what, what, a tr- what, uh, the, any kind of conservative bones I have in my body comes from the fact that human nature sucks. And I don't think you can socially engineer your way to progress necessarily. I think you can mitigate, but I think the government promising the moon is, is folly. And I think that human nature doesn't fundamentally change. And sometimes trying to legislate it to a fault is dangerous, even though I'd say, um, I am gay, so I believe in gay marriage, but I also know that marriage is, is an institution and I, I'm an institutionalist, you know, so there, I do have some, some sympathy to that. And I listen, the revolution came for Robespierre too in France. So, you know, it ate him alive and killed, he went to the guillotine. So, you know, there is something to be said for, oh my God, if we make all these changes, everything will be okay. And the problem with the progressive movement, just as a sidebar here for a second, is that they continually think the more laws they pass and the more change they enact, the better things will be. I live in California. I could tell you that's not the case. It is a hellhole. Okay. that they, they are, we are over-legislated, over-taxed, over-regulated. I sound like Ronald Reagan, but it, it's just the truth. And it makes life here to- very difficult. Yeah. Don't you love direct for democracy where everyone's like, oh, man, we can like change the laws by literally voting on it. Right. Well, and here's the thing. They vote on it, but then the politicians either squander, arguably steal the money to do things like change, fix homelessness. You know how many times we've voted for higher this and higher that they continually vote for that. They funnily enough, the ballot initiative two years ago, they. California voters opposed re, uh, uh, putting affirmative action back into public universities that they've opposed. So there is, there are times that you get sanity prevailing, but you know, it, it, you're right. I mean, there's the referenda situation, but we also have no system of checks and balances in reality. We have only a supermajority of Democrats in Sacramento and a runaway governor. We just do. And I'm not suggesting that I think we need MAGA people to take over California. I can't mm-hmm. stand Trump. I'm a never Trumper, but we do need a Tory center right balance to what's going on because it's it's run amok, you know, and all the things you I don't know how much time you spent out here, but it's true. Mm-hmm. It's very, 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 very thwarting, you know. 
Oh, no. I uh, took an entire class at Claremont McKenna on California politics. Right. And the moment that a whole bunch of libertarians realized that they could use the um, referendum system to abolish taxes on right. property was when in my um, professor's teaching, things started to go real downhill in California real fast. You mean the Prop 13? The Prop 13, the, yes. Yeah, the Jarvis thing that was pre-Reagan, uh, the capping of property taxes. Yeah, I think that's the that's probably the culprit. But, you know, with populations exploded and and there's more people and you know how it is. I mean, you went to school out here. It's, it's, it's unique. California is one of the largest economies in the world in and of itself. So it presents its problem. But back to you. You have something that uh, you can speak about being there sort of pre-MAGA, but I think this was sort of sobering in the book. I don't think. I mean, I you wrote about it. That, you know, the world you were living in and the world that you, I guess, were um, trusting in, you discovered something, which was very, so, very tough, I thought, uh, uh, that your journalism mentor was kind of a crypto-Nazi. <laughs> And that, you know, that was – talk about that. I mean that mm. you found that out. You had no idea that this person who was championing you was a, a white supremacist uh, stan, you know? Oh, my God. That was uh, horrifying. So just for listeners who haven't read it yet, this was a process that took – oh, my – yeah, over nine, ten years or something. So in 2009, as part of my, like – slow nudging into the conservative movement, I end up taking this journalism internship that's um, funded by the Koch brothers. It was called yeah. the Institute for Humane Studies Journalism Fellowship Program. And the idea was that they would identify, quote unquote, liberty-minded students right. who liked the free market, liked specific Koch era, early Tea Party type ideas, and wanted to have a career in journalism. So right. these guys would be like, okay, here's a pretty hefty stipend for the summer. And here's a placement into an internship where you can learn how to report and get clips. And eventually with the skills that we teach you become a journalist yourself. Right. And about 600 people apply to this, about 40 people get it. I end up doing some like dumb it, not dumb. I end up doing an internship at a tech policy blog. And afterwards, I get this invitation from the head of the program to be officially <clears throat> mentored by him. And when you're, you know, 19, 20, and don't know anyone in journalism, except for this guy who's offering to kind of push your career along, you're like, Oh, my God, yeah, this is great. So he starts weighing in on my resume, starts linking me up with people who are hiring, uh, and they all, looking back on it, are somewhat conservative and right-wing institutions. Um, there is one called the, the Independent Student League that wanted to hire journalists. They, end up, they also run a network of conservative papers on college campuses across the country, like Claremont, Dartmouth, Harvard, Stanford, what have you. Um, 
And he ends up getting me a job at the Daily Caller. That doesn't work out. We can talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and then he starts sending me to groups that are sketchier and sketchier and sketchier. Um, and they're all asking me to do things that just kind of go against what I wanted to do as a journalist, which was right. write things that are true and important to readers. And they were like, no, we need you to write about Democrats that are bad. Um, there's this one guy working for this place called the Colorado Observer, the Colorado Observer, who asked me to run all of these like extremely negative pieces about Democrats. I do a little bit of research and I'm like, wait a second. The Republican in Colorado is also doing the same thing. Um, and also this thing happened months and months ago. Why is this a story? And he starts going on and on about how it's not fair that the mainstream media only hits the Republicans and that the Democrats should be hit, too. And I'm thinking, well, this is not exactly what I signed up for. And I learned that this guy is also never had a job in journalism, used to work for the Koch Foundation, like one of the Koch brothers' political arms. And then before that was the chief of staff to a uh, paleo-conservative, highly controversial congressman who would speak at events with Confederate flags in them. So at that point, I'm like, Okay, no, there's something deeply wrong with what's happening here. This is my mentor who wants me to have a career in journalism, and he's directed me to, into these jobs. I can't do this anymore. You know what? Screw it. I'm going to torch my life and move to New York and try to forget this ever happened. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I think I'm sure that you and you and you we talk about it when we talk about the whole situation with January 6th in your book, which you got to cover, obviously, and, and we're in close quarters for, you know, that the, the MAGA movement is not a governing philosophy. It's completely in thrall, in, as I see it, I'm not alone in this, to the kind of congenital lies and malignant narcissism that Trump promulgates, right? And the irony of it is, is even though it defines itself as a kind of governing ideology, it really is a burn the house down incineration machine. It wants to sort of incinerate everything. You know, it's this sort of like phony populism meets like quasi-anarchy, fascist, you know, melange, which is kind of nuts, really. And I think it culminated in, in Stop the Steal and ultimately January 6th, which you looked at. Talk about the January being this close to the January 6th, the horrible day that was January 6th. But also, did you ever think that the conservative movement, uh, the conservative movement, that the uh, the right would culminate in, in, in actually trying to stop the peaceful transfer of power? Mm. There is a theory that I've been exploring, and hopefully I'll do something more formal on this. But um, yeah. I mentioned it in the book called The Infinite Fringe. Yeah. And – the idea is that the reason that conservatism existed in its very genteel state up through 2015, 2016 was that they believed they could control exactly what was considered right wing and what was not considered right wing. Um, there, and it's been a feature of the conservative movement since its very beginning. Uh, at one point, I go, there is a, um, there was a feud in the very early days of conservatism between William F. Buckley, who is like a suit wearing national review editing smart man and another group called the um john birch society which sure. was absolutely wacko nut job that believed that not only were 
like not only was the president and the secretary of state and all of these other people in power secret agents of communism, but so was like <coughs> Cornelius Vanderbilt, most of Hollywood. You um, didn't know that Eisenhower was a commie? You didn't oh, know that? Oh. oh, yes. Eisenhower, the most commie of commies right. that ever commied. Right. Um, but then also, <laughs> also get this. The Communist Party was actually an Illuminati plot oh. that dated back to the 1780s. And that conspiracy dates back to the time of ancient Sparta. Um, but this was a really popular uh, and growing faction within the conservative movement. So Buckley was like, no, I want to take my ideas mainstream. These are QAnon's antecedents, really. Yes, I mean, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Um and he's like, no, I want to take my movement mainstream. I cannot have these guys as part of my movement. So he uses his magazine, his influence, um, basically whatever tools he has available to kick those guys out. And they look and I mean, the Birch Society, John Birch Society is essentially forgotten to this day, uh, unless you really, really deep into the background. But I was always waiting for a moment where the official conservative movement that I'd grown up when grown up in successfully pushed out Trumpism and all the nasty little Republicans who were in his category mm -hmm. and they just failed and they failed over and over and over again. Like you had national review, try to write an ep write an issue called against Trump, which failed. Uh, you had Fox news trying valiantly to rein in, um, whatever Trump wanted to do that day, which also failed. Um, you had them trying to rein in Tucker Carlson. You had them trying to keep Mike Lindell off the airwaves. Um, and even other places like Breitbart were trying to get rid of their malign influences, but they could never exile them the same way that Buckley could do to the Birchers. And obviously the internet has a massive role to play in all of this, but what would happen is that these guys would get kicked off of those platforms, but then go elsewhere on the internet and go, hey, I'm over here now. Someone's tried to cancel me. I will never be silenced. Come over here to wherever I am now, whether it's like a new Instagram, whether it's a new um, social media platform, streaming service, what have you. And even if there's someone within that new group who is no longer acceptable to them and he gets kicked out, he can go elsewhere. Um like I would say the bulwark is another example of mm. people who ended up in right wing Trumpism and went, wait, no, we don't want to be here anymore. We're going to leave and then we're going to establish our own audience over here. Um, so that's I call this the infinite fringe um, just because there is no way to stop the idea and the concept or the people that will be like antithetical to your movement. So it at this point in time, it does feel kind of futile to try to rein things back in. And that was sort of going back to January 6th, that was sort of the that was sort of the genesis of that too. Like of course there were all of these mainstream conservatives who were trying to not like while they accepted the peaceful transfer of power, they were also like, hey, you know what? We still have the Senate seat in Georgia. Trump can help us flip it. But then Trump goes all in on the election was stolen, which meant that his social media followers, who the Republican Party apparatus could not control, or the mm -hmm. media present, or like the stalwarts of conservative media like Fox could not control either, 
were like, oh my God, yeah, hit the steel needs to be stopped. So this goes further and further and further into a zone where January 6th could happen. Um, mm. And one of the reasons I thought that something extremely violent could happen that day was I had been covering the online MAGA movement during my time as a White House reporter because it was during COVID and that was when basically right-wing internet memes started dictating Trump's policy against COVID. (laughs) Um, But I started seeing these theories of what January 6th as a day could be populate in areas that were fringe and sort of already inclined to be violent. Um, the Proud Boys, when they started seeing, seeing Stop the Steal stuff pop up, were like, oh no, Antifa's coming after our government. We have a right to protect our people and our supporters against violent Antifa BLM. And the Oath Keepers, which subscribe to the militia theory of the Second Amendment, were like, we have rights as sovereign citizens to use whatever force is necessary to stop any sort of tyranny that we see befall across the country. And since we believe that January 6th has this like bizarrely constitutional date where you can't like where like Mike Pence suddenly has a magic power to stop Biden from being president and someone's trying to stop him, we should go to Washington and protect Trump from these bad guys. Um, So they loved attacking government buildings. Um, And the moment that I was like, okay, there are some guys who want to, who feel like they can attack government buildings who are going to the Capitol that day. Also, these proud boys who like to beat people up are also going to the Capitol. Oh, no. Oh, 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 boy, this is going to be interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think it's very interesting when you discuss how the right was lost in the sense of, you know, by the time Buckley formed National Review, right, and as he would put it, you know, uh, isolated or um, marginalized all the kooks and cranks and bigots and anti-Semites and all those people that had been associated with the conservative movement, it was an attempt historically to kind of find an intellectual um, um, respect and in a movement that could command a real set of ideas. And, you know, from Buckley's time through Reagan, the conservative movement, especially after, you know, a lot of the things that happened in the 60s and 70s, certainly on economic policy and social policy had become, had proven to be more challenging than I think that Democrats and the left thought the Republicans became the party of ideas, you know, and which Mm -hmm. sort of then found a voice with a kind of Reagan styled internationalism during the cold war, which really borrowed from Truman and a lot of the sort of uh, traditional Wilsonian thinking that, that had come um, really out of, out of 20th century international thought, but also just the idea that the rule of law mattered, that immigration was good for the country, you know, and that, and that a rising tide lifted all boats again, you know, what kind of set up a kind of libertarian thinking tank and thought, idea a center for when you went to became a Claire monster, you know, by the time you got there, a lot of stuff had come in, as you call it a Claire monster, you know, there was a, a right wing think tank of ideas. Um, and, but, but even they became kind of, you know, Trump doctrine people. I mean, they, didn't they, didn't the Claremont. Yeah. I mean, 
Yeah. I mean, that, that, that what I mean is, what I'm trying to say is, you know, the whole effort to give intellectual respect and intellectual credibility to the conservative movement, which it should very much have. I think Berkeyan ideas make a lot of sense. I don't think that this is a, a bogus ideology, but I think it gets undermined by these white nationalist elements, by the racism, and by mm -hmm. this capitulation to lawlessness as defined by Trumpism. Right. And I think the the way that the Claremont Institute works. And I think that's, it's best expressed by how Peter Thiel was operating when he was trying to play political kingmaker is that, yeah, okay. Society's moving too quick. We like these Burkean ideas. However, we also believe that there is a, there is a class of elites that can be able to dictate exactly how society should and should not be um, run. And the problem is, is that I don't think they quite understand viral, the virality of ideas as well as Trumpism does. And so they can throw all of their fancy essays as it, into the churn as they want. But if they throw the wrong essay into the churn, it, it introduces ideas that are abhorrent and anathema to what they initially wanted to promote. Like, do you remember um, John Eastman? Um, sure. So sure. he, for listeners, he was the uh, constitutional lawyer who was like, oh, my God, January 6th is the day that we can stop the steal. And this man's a law professor at Chapman right. University. This man is not like a kook in a basement with a ham radio. Right. He had access to the White House and was like, no, we should do this. We should do this. We should do this. And everyone in there was like, no, this is insane. But – after January 6th, the sweet, sweet people at the Claremont Review of Books were like, let's have him debate another person in the Claremont orbit who is fully against him. And I'm like, the fact mm. that you think that this guy is worth being in the Claremont right. Review of Books, even though he's promoting an idea that is so like outside the bounds of stability and normalcy is right. telling – I'd say. He famously argued that the role of the vice president was much more than ceremonial, that it could actually stop the count, the electoral certification. Exactly. Um, exactly. And, and yeah, I mean, a complete, and again, you know, somebody who again came from the theoretic, ostensibly respectable world, you know, it's, it's a little bit to what I'm saying is that there were plenty of thought leaders who succumbed to this because there is a sense of like, you know, anger among, as you know, because you were in the world of conservatives who feel powerless against institutions. So then it becomes, well, I'm so angry, I'm going to own the libs at any cost, right? Even if that means destroying the rule of law and the constitution, which is where they lost their way. You know, it's one thing to have Fox News rail against, you know, liberal policies, many of which can be bad, many of which I would disagree with. It's another thing for them to defend um, sedition and, you know, uh, shredding of the constitution and not even being well, at least publicly uh, willing to say that, you know, the peaceful transfer of power was a miracle as Ronald Reagan said, you know, something that we took for granted for mm. all the whole history. It's very interesting, isn't it? And yeah, it really is. It's, and I think the conservative movement is unable to recognize within itself that it's fracturing and they don't really have control of it anymore. Uh, on, and my big brain galaxy brain theory about the future of MAGA um, 
and I've said this a couple of times, but I'll say it again. It's going to be very hard to keep MAGA as unified as it currently is without Trump in the mix. And that's not just because he's, uh, I agree. you know, it's not, and it's not literally, it's literally just not because he's a massive personality yep. with, you know, the kind of political, interpersonal, performative, rhetorical touches that make him so compelling to a lot of people, but it's because he's the last like universally famous person on the right. Right. And I think in a world where audiences have fragmented to a point of absolutely no return, if you don't have someone that people can point to and be like, I've watched this man for 30 freaking years plus, um, I understand his background. I know where he's from. I recognize him. I like remember him like that. There is not another person on the right who could feasibly replicate that. And once he's disappeared, you're going to see the entire thing collapse into, uh, um, I'd say the war, like a warring states situation, factionalism, backbiting. Yeah. It's going to get ugly. Um, yeah. 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 But that, like I said, that's not going to happen until like Trump is no longer in the equation. Well, you saw Ron DeSantis try to be the tribute band, the bad karaoke version. Nobody wanted that. But you're right about the fame thing. You know, you just put something in my head about the Republicans, and let's go back and think about it. Ronald Reagan, famous actor, governor of California. He ran with H.W. Bush, who had been the head of the CIA, that he was famous. Of course, then if you move on to George W. Bush, he's the son. Let's not forget, but let's also talk about the people who didn't win. Bob Dole, who was very famous, had been the head of the RNC for Nixon. Ford's running mate in 76. He mm. had a pro, you know, all these people, Romney, who had been governor of Massachusetts, the son of George Romney. McCain was an icon, you know, uh, Coleman, even though Trump, yes, was a reality star, but it's interesting. The Democrats have people like Barack Obama. No one even knows who that was at Pete Buttigieg. They kind of come out of nowhere, but they're, you know, the Republicans used to have, right. You wait in line, your turns next. And, you know, and they're able to build, um, a movement. The difference is, is that Trump hasn't built a movement or a mm -hmm. party he's built himself because that's all he cares about. And I think Trumpism dies with Trump. I don't mean there won't be rage and factionalism mm -hmm. and 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 disparate elements not know no, not knowing what to do with each other. But I agree with you. I'm not saying I'm optimistic that this rage goes away, but th but their cult of personality icon will be gone. Don't you I'm, think? I would counter that with the young conservative movement. Okay. Um, and this is where I had entered when I was a okay. young person. The right has invested so much money in capturing yeah. the next generation of leaders, yeah. activists, thinkers at the college level. Um, I don't think I would have known anything about this world if I hadn't looked at the jobs listing and saw liberty minded students um, who want journalism careers. There are all right. of these other institutions that work at that level, too. There's one for leadership. There's one for, like, academics. There's one for mm -hmm. lawyers. Um, and the generation that's coming in now is especially attenuated towards culture wars. Libs are bad. Yeah. And Charlie Kirk and Turning Point recruit them. We, we've had on the sort of antidote to them, the Dream for America organization. I don't know if you've heard them. They I have kind not, of, and that's sort of the point, I guess. Right. <laughs> and meanwhile, they're trying to build a profile, but they're having to combat 
you know, Charlie Kirk and Turning Point going to 12th grade boys and saying you have to join the culture wars. You know, mm. that's what that's that you're to your point. Yes, they start young and inculcate and 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 that's interesting. But who will lead? It's the question, right? Yeah. Who will lead is the question, but they're going to have Trumpist inclinations no matter what. Right. It's not like you're good. Um, it's not like these are a bunch of 40 something year old guys who remember what it was like in the old days. These are people who no. were 16 right. when Trump came down the elevator and went, ooh, this is kind of where I want to go. Right. Um, now, speaking of leaders, of course, and I guess you could say, although he's so weirdly anti-establishmentarian as well. You worked for Tucker Carlson. We must get to the granddaddy of the stories of the book. Um, he was at the Daily Caller then. Um, you even have in your book an epilogue uh, called Tucker and Me, which uh, was April of 2023. Talk about Tucker, your relationship, what it was, where it went. I think people need to hear about this. Mm. So Tucker was the guy who gave me my first job in journalism, period. Yeah. Um, and people are shocked whenever I say this out loud. But yeah. working at the Daily Caller in 2011 was very fun. Yeah. Um, like he made sure that everyone was at least taken care of. He would always sort of endorse this really mischievous atmosphere at the caller. Um, and I just had the time of my life there. And I was really sad when I had to leave, um, even though the reason I left was kind of um, – sus and there's a very legal <laughs> narrow way i can discuss it but right 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 um, you write about it in the book but and that the part that i was taken with initially is when you went in to talk to tucker he was like weirdly humane and kind of compassionate about it wasn't he he was um yeah. i remember like he offered me this advice on like what to do after i've been punched in the face by being fired which was don't get drunk tonight it's just not going to make you feel any better um, and then he offered me his phone number. So if my mother was mad at me um, for losing this job, he would he offered to just talk to her directly and say, look, this wasn't your daughter's fault. <laughs> right. Right. And then, of course, you know, you kind of stayed in touch with him. You reached out to him for some leads through the years him and his colleague, and that sometimes he was kind of helpful, but sometimes he was sort of vague, right? I don't know anybody there, he would say, mm -hmm. or is that right, as you as you discuss it? It was always a little bit of, like, give and take depending on, like, the story. And, look, he's a public figure. I don't blame him for being vague, and I certainly don't blame him for being really weird about this entire situation. Like, right. he remembers me sobbing on his couch as a 22-year-old, and now I'm here going, like, hello, I right. need to, like, corner you for a story right now, arm wrestle, like. Right. And he has every, every, you have every reason to believe he liked you, you know, despite that. I mean, you know, even though you were kind of put in this weird, on this weird beat, you know. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird beat and it's, and it's just so uncomfortable that I am one of the few people who can speak to Tucker without ever, just speak about Tucker and to Tucker in a mainstream capacity where everyone is like, Look, you're the like we don't have anyone else in our industry who knows how to do this. Can you go do this? And I'm like, I don't like it, but mm. you know what? Uh, news is news, and Tucker is a massive public figure now. So, uh, yeah, let's go. And I mean, amazingly, in the book, the day that Tucker's fired, you text him, "Bro, what?" 
<laughs> I thought that was, I mean, your book, by the way, is, is f- so full of levity and fun too. I mean, you know, that's the other thing is that, you know, the, you, you understand the absurdity of this trajectory <laughs> and what it is, you know, you are not, not to say it's tongue in cheek, but you have a joviality in your writing style, which makes it, you know, all the more entertaining, I have to say, but talk about that text to Tucker. I mean, it was like, that was good that you reached out, bro. What, you know? Yeah, I mean, I call everybody bro. And the funny thing is that like- (laughs) I like that, yeah. I call everybody bro. And I think one of the things that makes me as a reporter on right-wing stuff easier is that I remember growing up with this world and these people and I remember them and I know them as just individuals and people just trying to do a good job. And it is so easy, I think, in journalism and especially the world or anyone who talks about Republicans to be like, why did you go and become a Republican? Are you insane and a backwards hick type dealio? And I'm like, right. No, I remember when we were all 19, like getting kind of drunk in the um, lobby of some random think tank. That was a good time. (laughs) And everyone (laughs) I know had that point. Like everyone I know in the conservative movement, no matter whether they became Trumpy or not, definitely had that moment. Um, I remember one person who is extremely MAGA did text me like after he read the first chapter, like, oh, my God, I have so many memories of these times. Like, I remember. Mm. And then he just went into a very like a story about his first kiss. And I was like, oh, geez, did I like give you a Madeline or something? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's a version two of, you know, yeah, the old saying, never meet your heroes. I think in this instance, never meet your villains. Because I think what happens is, is when you get to know people, right? You mm-hmm. always judge them differently. I spent, so I spent a year on Fox news mm-hmm. um, as their liberal, although I'm not really liberal, they're just so right. And I used to marvel at being in the green room just with all these people that I would theoretically conceive of as sort of baddies, you know, and then it's hard to be angry at them as they're being really super sweet about whatever it is you just said, or mm-hmm. you're having a really good conversation about an Italian restaurant you both like or whatever, you know I mean? And you had a much deeper relationship, but you sort of get disarmed immediately. Um, and these were some of the people I liked the least, and I'm not going to name them that I'd be in the green green room with. And I'd be like, wow, you know, you're kind of cool. You're fun. Are you, you really don't seem that bad. Is this shtick? Are you like, is this a, like a, like a weird fascist, like cosplay? I mean, you don't know. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I know that that, you know, you have to, again, have to have a journalistic detachment to things, but Tucker, you know, and knew. Right. Yeah. It always makes me wonder, like, what would I have done if I didn't have the ability to just give up and move to New York? Like, Right. I didn't have student loans coming out of Claremont. Right. Lucky. If I did, and this was maybe 2011, 2012, when the full devastation of the student loan crisis was beginning to become known. Yes. Like, would I have stayed in Washington and continued to become a right-wing hack journalist? Probably. Like, it's- Because you mean because that world provided a certain amount of economic security you couldn't have found elsewhere? Exactly. Yeah. Like I could move to New York and get a job for 30 grand a year churning out blog posts about being a food writer. But (laughs) I but I would not have been able to do that if I also had a like five hundred dollar a month loan payment on top of that, you know. Right. No, I know. Um, And and 
one more thing before we talk about something that you and I love in common, that is musicals, which people are going to love. Um, what do you think about, I have to ask people this, it's election year, we're covering it as, as everybody is. I don't know, you know, I don't want to ask you to over-speculate, but how are we, what do you feel about the Biden-Trump rematch and the prospects of another Trump presidency? Does that look realistic to you? Do you think the polls are, you think it's the fundamentals really favor Biden as, as the num- some numbers show? I mean, it, 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 it's hard to know. It's so hard to know, especially since the media environment and the polling environment has fragmented so, like, insanely, I hate to use that word, but, like, you can't really tell what polling is true or false anymore, what polling actually reflects reality. Um, Like, did you know that one of the reasons that polls are starting to get really wonky is because pollsters can't actually reach the people who they want to like poll. Right. It's all like, there are no more landlines. So people have to reach out to cell phones. But if you look at your cell phone and see a weird number, you're going to be like, I don't know, man, like this is spam. Send that to voicemail. And you know, kids don't really want to be on like fielding spam mail anyways. So how do you actually get in touch with voters? Um, How do you know that like whatever is being read with, X number of clicks and traffic and views is actually something that is going to inform people's votes. Like does, does putting a video up on Elon Musk's X actually reach the people that you need to turn out or will you just be screaming into a void? Like it's hard to figure out what metrics or numbers to point at to make any sort of sound judgment over who's going to be the president or not. Um, that being said, I think the Trump world kind of understands that better than Biden does. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you're are you going to be covering at Puck this sort of right wing uh, reaction and 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 environment leading up to this election? Is that what you're? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, um, Puck for people who don't know, yeah. um, it's basically what would happen if you took Vanity Fair. And put it on a Substack model. Um, right. You and uh, we have a, a team of journalists who are incredibly talented and high level at their jobs, and also me, I suppose. And we all cover various corridors of power and industries. Um, in the like, what are people discussing these days? Level. So, right. um, Matt Bellany, who is our Hollywood correspondent covers like backroom deals and investments and lawsuits and things like that. Right. Um, Julia Ioffe, who's my coworker on the, um, on our Washington product writes about national security, Russia. Uh, and I cover the right as the institution that I've just described. It's like a community, it's a culture, it's a job network. It's actually, if you like look really, really deep into it, it's a way of life. So I view that as much of an institution as Wall Street or, you know, Silicon Valley. Right. Yeah. No, and indeed you do, and you capture it brilliantly in the book, and we've learned a lot by it. I think everyone's enjoying this because um, it's amazing to get what essentially is, you know, not just a bird's eye account, but somebody who, again, was there through the years leading up to the crisis that the right's in now – and yet can go into uh, quote unquote mainstream media and report on it and cover it because you understand it. And that's put you in a unique situation. Hence why you, I'm so glad you wrote a memoir. 
I mean, it's <laughs> important that that you have a memoir. But let's. But before we go, we. I realized by reading the book, I Tina loves musicals. Those who listen to me know my prior life. I was a Broadway producer. So Tina, you were in seventy seventy six. Oh, a great show when you're in fifth grade. What are your favorite musicals right now? What? Who do you like? What are you up to? What's your uh, I am just booked tickets to Merrily We Roll Along on Broadway, and I am so, I so, so. Oh, my God. Uh, I mean, I, I know the musical it. very deeply, and I. Right. the reason that this musical has never worked out before yeah. this current cast is because the entire thing takes place backwards. Like, it starts right. off with three friends who are like, oh, man, I'm 40 and miserable, and how did I get right. to be here? And it goes backwards in time to show like how their friendship dissolved, how their dreams dissolved and what they, and it goes further and further and further back and ends with them being these hopeful 20 somethings on a rooftop thinking about what the future is going to look like. And if you listen to it, it is just heartbreaking and devastating. Uh, but then when you see it on stage, you're like, Wait, so I'm supposed to believe that this 45-year-old is also a 25-year-old? Like, yeah. no. It, it, it's, is- got, it's got the same problems. What makes this production, I think, um, so effective is how great the cast is, especially Jonathan Groff. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's luminously wonderful in it. But you're right. So for those people that don't know, Stephen Sondheim, the great Stephen Sondheim, who we only lost a few years ago, who was known for Sweeney Todd into the woods, uh, writing the lyrics, of course, for Gypsy and West Side Story and being iconic company shows go on and on. Wrote a musical that premiered in 1981, very short lived because it didn't last but a couple of weeks on Broadway and then became a cult favorite because it has this amazing score. And, mm-hmm. and uh, anyway, it's returned in a hit revival to Broadway. What else? What else do you like? Mm. Ooh, man. I've always liked the comedy musicals. Book of Mormon's been a favorite of mine. Um, I produced Hairspray. Did you know that? Did you ever see Hairspray? No, I loved Hairspray. That's yeah. fantastic. Oh, my God. Yeah. You're very cool. Thank um, you. <laughs> so are you. I, I love it. And um, it turns out that my boyfriend's family really loves The Sound of Music. So every oh, year at Christmas, they open up watching the – they open up – Christmas time, I guess, by watching National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And then they always end it like Chris, the night of Christmas Day by watching The Sound of Music. And I'm just sitting there like singing my uh, little tiny rendition of you are 16 going on 17, baby, it's time to fly. I love it. Well, that's great. I love it. From Chevy Chase to the Austrian Alps. Now that sounds like a good Christmas, right? But listen, Tina, I, I, in the meantime, and we could go on and on about musicals, but for those again, that have not read the MAGA diaries, my surreal adventures inside the right wing and how I got out. Tina Wen joined us today to talk about it. It is really a must read book because so many people who love and observe politics, certainly those who are on the left don't quite understand how this all happens uh, and happened and what is happening. And uh, all the uh, folks who listen here love to hear from, you know, the, uh, the people who are shaping political thought, reporting on it and who have a pivotal role in our discourse right now. And that is you, Tina. And I thank you for coming on and, and promoting the book and sharing your experiences. Um, it's been a delight. I think, you know, given that you were never a true believer, I'm going to go ahead and say, I think you're a dirty moderate anyway. So this is good. Oh no. Yes. You have to be, it's a badge of honor. Trust no, me. I'm, I'm a cheerful nihilist. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah. Cheerful, dirty, moderate meets cheerful nihilist. There you go. Well, Tina, thank you so much for joining us. Don't leave. I want to talk to you on the other side, folks. Thank you for joining uh, me, Tina Wynn here talking about her MAGA diaries. As always, uh, stay safe, stay dirty. Don't be nihilistic. Stay moderate.